News Daily. Thanks for being here. We spent the last hour of the show asking the question, uh, make your best argument as to why Trump should debate tomorrow. Why should he make your best? Even if you don't think he should, what's the best argument? Because I couldn't really think of a good one. I I couldn't think of a good argument as to why he should. Because he's so far ahead. If he was up by 10 points, you could make the argument, hey, these guys are nipping at your heels. You really got to you gotta, you know, differentiate yourself. I could get that. I could see that. I, I get the whole, you know, don't be a coward. Present your case in front of the people. But, like, like we don't know who he is. So I, I, I can't really make the argument as to why he should. So I was like, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe you can. And the phones were full for an hour with people making really, really good arguments. As to why it's so good, I think they I think I got turned around on. I think I think he should actually. I get why he's not, but now I think he actually should. For his own good. For his own benefit. So that was really fun. Uh and you can subscribe to SiriusXM and listen to the full three hour podcast in order to get that. Let's start here with the first segment of the show where we talked about uh some race stuff. Especially well, we'll get to it. I don't want to give it away now. But the New York Times is uh, making a claim that no other group of people could ever make. We'll leave it there. Here it is. Start here, and we'll see what kind of rabbit hole we get into. This is some, uh, what is this, Sky News. Sky News in England about the Women World Cup soccer team. I guess the English team did well or went far. I don't know. Here they are talking about a front cover of a British newspaper, which has uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the girls on the front page. The only thing I would say about this picture here, what jumps out of you is that this doesn't sort of represent diverse Britain. Um, It's all these blonde, blue-eyed girls. And, you know, I I wish them well. But I do think we need to ask ourselves questions about why is it that we've got... um, It's so... It has a lack of diversity. they're, They're playing sport at an elite level. Yeah. And they are from Britain. And... They're, they're women. It does make any difference. I think if the whole idea behind this is going to encourage more women to go and into the sport, you need some sort of representation yeah. there to say whatever background you come from, you could get to you this do. sort of level. Because it's Britain important, doesn't look like it? That. Yeah, it and doesn't. it's so I mean, important <laughs> when you speak to these little girls right. that they see someone that they can right. relate exactly. to. Exactly. It makes such a difference. That little girl might then end mm. up playing football. Yeah. Because she's seen someone who looks like her. Mm. But it doesn't detract. Yeah. I, <laughs> there's so much to do here. He says, if the whole idea of this is to encourage women, diverse women to get into sport, I don't know if that is. I think the point's to win. I think the point's to win the game. Anything inside of, why are you talking about women's soccer? You think I care about women's soccer? This is a metaphor for our country. The point is to win. The point is to be the best. The point is to demand excellence. 
The point is not to encourage people to tr do whatever. No, it's to get the best and win in life. But also, I have to reject even this very premise. I just wish there was someone there on that stage. I don't care who, who could be like, what are you guys talking about? I do not think it is true that a little kid needs to see someone who looks like them in order to feel inspired to go do something. I just want to push back on that initial premise that we hear everywhere. First of all, the greatest heroes that we celebrate are the people who do things that no one else has done. So, I mean, like, we were just the other day with the kids read a book about uh, Neil Armstrong. Kids love Neil Armstrong. He did things that, like, no one did. You know what I mean? Or whatever. Like, the, the first people to do things aren't inspired by anyone because <laughs> they're the first to do it. Right? It's like, Neil Armstrong, he's about to hop on the moon. He's not like, oh, I wish I saw a white guy do this first. It didn't, like, no one did it. And if you do see someone doing great things, and, and, and we're told to only see the race of that person, then that's the proof that we are infecting the minds of kids in a really, really destructive way where a, a black girl in England sees a white woman play soccer and says to herself, oh, well, I, I guess I'm not allowed to play soccer. What do you mean? You're a woman. You're a girl who will be a woman. Like what? Oh, oh, your skin color is different. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> like I reject the entire narrative. That's insane. Because you know where this leads. I'll tell you exactly where it leads. It leads to the idea that black patients need black doctors, and black students need black teachers, and black. Uh, uh, people need black pilots or whatever. It's, it, and you know, the next step in that spiral, because we're already there, we're clearly already there. It was in the Supreme Court case, the affirmative action Supreme Court case. The Justice Jackson said we need, uh, or, or what she said, black doctor, black kids are twice as likely to survive if they have a black doctor versus a white doctor. Something ridiculous like that. On oh, its face, ridiculous. But you know the next step, because we're already there. So what's the next step? Black people need their own black states. Now, I really, truly wasn't going to do this and talk about this story as when I first saw it. But then the New York Times changed the headline, which to me says they realize they missed the mark. The headline, but that's just the headline. They didn't change anything else in the article. The headline was, we need black majority states. An argument for consolidating black political power. Wow. Aaron McIntyre says, you can call for racial consolidation and black nationalism in the premier state propaganda organ and no one bats an eye. That is wild. And the headline, the new headline is, Dear Black Americans, Please Move to the South. I don't know if that's much better. So here it is, Charles Blow. His argument is that ahead of the Civil War, this seems right at the end of the Civil War, 
there were three states that were a majority black and three of them were close. Now, he never says which states, and I tried to look up what he's talking about, and I couldn't find it. But, okay, fine, we'll, we'll go with it. And then there was a mass migration of black people from the South into cities in the Northeast and the, the Midwest. Uh, six million black people moved from the South to the rest of the country. So like 1910 to 1970 or so. He says that hasn't gone well. He says the rise of racialized, chronic ghettos and urban areas, intense, concentrated poverty, militarized policing. He's saying it's not going well. So now the call to action from black activists. Did you know this? The call to action from black activists is reverse migration. Now he says it's already happening just naturally on its own. People are moving out of certain parts of the country and moving to other parts of the country. Uh, He says we hope to apply to it or infuse it with a kind of political framing to give it a definition, to give it shape. Because right now it's without that. It's devoid of that. The Great Migration had it. There were champions of the Great Migration. Black newspapers in the North actively recruited black people to move North. There's no parallel phenomenon now, and I'm hoping to fill that void. And he says, we can win. We can get political power with this. So he points to Georgia. In 1990, there were 1.7 million black people in Georgia. Today, there's 3.4 million black people in Georgia. And Biden won Georgia to win the White House and win the Senate. He says, this is what, to me, real power looks like. You can have an impact on the presidency. You can have an impact in the Senate. And you can have an impact on all the power that states wield. Everything from writing the criminal code to education to health care. By the way, what happens when Trump wins 50% of the, black, of the black vote? Charles Blow won't be very happy about that. Here is Mr. Blow. People freak out when I say that I believe that some states should be majority black. But I always ask them this question. Why are you not freaking out? that every state but Hawaii is at least a plurality white and that there are seven or eight states where 90 plus percent of the population is majority white. Why does that not cause you any agita? Okay, well, it's not true, first of all. California is not a plurality Hispanic, but, um, and I don't know about other states, but, all right, so there's a ton going on here. I don't care, I just wanna be very clear. I don't care if a state is a majority. Anything means nothing to me at all. The concern here, Mr. Blow, is when this is some sort of race-based, planned and orchestrated replacement political strategy. Right? That's when that's when like, like a yellow flag goes up and I say, wait, 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 what are you, what's going on? What are you doing? So it's like, hey, a million black people want to move to Tennessee. Okay. Okay. That, that's different than we are going to actively encourage a million black activists to move to Tennessee so that we can fundamentally change the political and cultural makeup of the city that you live in and drive your kind out of power. <laughs> like, whoa. Huh? What are you doing? One, I, I, that's a difference there. You see you with me on the difference, Charles? The motive there seems a little fishy. Now, I truly believe that this is the vast majority conservative opinion. We don't give a lick about race. We truly only believe in merit, 
judging people based on the content of their character. That is it. Listen, this whole last week we've talked all about morality and virtue. Never any, never anything in there about race. Irrelevant. Absolutely irrelevant. But we are just inundated with this idea that race is all that matters. I just saw this video last night. So let me see if I can describe this clearly. Uh, they had a row of people, I don't know, maybe 10 people. First, there's a row of 10 black people, and they're in a uh, line, right? So from the camera, they're in a vertical line. And uh, they, they asked a question, and you move somewhere in the room based off your answer. So if you move to, as we're looking at it, move to the right, it's strongly agree. And the further you move to the right, the more strongly you agree. And then you move to the left if you strongly disagree. Right? And then you stay in the middle if it's neutral. And the question was, I am proud to be black. Three, two, one, go. Boom. Everyone runs to the end of the room. Now, again, this is, a one, this is one, I don't know what this is from. I don't know who they picked. Right? But it's one visual representation. All 10 black people move all the way to the right. Then they ask the question to white people. You got 10 white people in line. They say, I'm proud to be white. Three, two, one, go. And all the white people are like, uh, uh, I feel like this is a trick. Uh, and they like slowly move to the sort of disagree. <laughs> like, is this being filmed? I don't know what to do. Pretty funny. I don't know what to do with that exactly, other than my knee-jerk reaction of why is anyone proud of anything that you have no control over? I guess you can be grateful. You can be grateful for people who came before you, but proud of your skin color just makes no sense to me. So I believe that one has a right to question if this new ethno state that Charles Blow wants to create in the South is based off of merit, who's best qualified to do things, or is this new ethnostate based on his own power brokers pulling their own level levers of corrupt and inept power? Because if it's that, I don't know if that's a great idea. Interesting to me that Mr. Blow here thinks that white people wield power poorly, but black people will wield and create some sort of utopia. By the way, he did mention Hawaii. And we're going to talk about Hawaii in a little bit. He said every state except Hawaii has a plurality white. I know that's not true because I know California does. I don't know about Texas and other states. Or California is not plurality white, but whatever. Almost all the states. But he did specifically mention Hawaii. Hawaii is a not plurality white state. Okay, let's talk about ineptness. They keep saying, still today, they say a thousand people are missing. It's been two weeks. It's been two weeks. When are they going to say that people are no longer missing? It's not a huge place. They're not still in the water. They didn't go hide in the forest. When are the officials there going to start dealing with reality? At some point, they have to say the death count. But then when they do, and it's a thousand, they're going to get a lot more scrutiny. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I just I just say, share that to say it's, it's not 
the white that matter. There's a state that's plurality, not white. It's not just just not the white white people aren't the problem. But yeah, it's like white white. It's not it's not white people that are corrupt or inept. And if only we put our kind in charge. That well, you can look at the majority uh, countries in Africa, the black majority country. How are they doing? Uh, well, they were colonized by white people, so it's white people's fault. Okay, well, let's look at the black majority schools. How are they doing? Well, that's ultimately controlled by white administrators and white political leaders, so it's white people's fault. Okay, well, let's look at a black majority neighborhoods. There were 40 shootings in Chicago last weekend. 40. Ah, oh, well, those are, that's white flight. Those are run and controlled by white police departments in white controlled states. Jeez, okay, uh, how about we look at black-controlled entertainment? Nicki Minaj, not exactly a paragon of virtue. Oh, well, she's a victim of the white-owned capitalist landscape that's forcing her to behave the way she is in order for black people to have... Blah, 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 blah. So everything's white, right? We talked a couple weeks ago about a black-run hospital specifically explicitly created to be run by black administrators and black doctors and black nurses for the black residents of Compton after the Watts riots. And it quickly became known as Killer King and had to be shut down because it became a house of horrors. Look up, look up Killer King Hospital. You can read all about it. And I hate even having this conversation because they are pushing this binary on us that is so not necessary. Skin color means nothing to me. But when they keep pushing this idea of of black people need to take over, right? You're gonna you're gonna cause white people to say, "Wait, huh? What are you doing? What's happening? Taking over? What do you mean taking over? No, we're all here. We're all Americans just here. What do you mean taking over?" Let me play this clip here. We had Larry Elder on the show yesterday, so he was on the show, The Breakfast Club, which is on BET with Charlemagne the God. And here's a funny exchange i love when when larry here says i think he says boys boy <laughs> wow i don't okay about the asian community asian community it's easy for them to get loans for entrepreneurships it's easy, easy for them to get loans for houses you look at our community okay. if you really if you really want to talk about our community right you look at the schools in our community some of our schools are the worst right would they, you agree they, with that they, yes they, or no absolutely which right? is why they which is why Wi-Fi, which, which is why, which is why one, of the, one of the reasons i'm running for president is for school also, choice also would you say that it's in, in our community is systemic it's, it's also in our communities heavy food deserts there's nothing but fast food places that are just killing and destroying that would you say that's, that's true systemic too by the way boy. Uh, you you mentioned, say this, I'm just asking a question. Okay, you said a number of things. I just addressed one of them about sure. loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1965, uh, Barack Obama, who was then in private practice, uh, joined a bunch of other lawyers to file a class action lawsuit against Citicorp, which is headquartered here in New York. 186 uh, black people were applying for loans for mortgages and didn't get them, and they accused Citicorp of engaging in racism. Mm-hmm. Citicorp said, no, it's not racism. You have poor credit scores, and we want to make sure we get our money back. Uh, Obama joined a bunch of other lawyers, and they sued uh, Citicorp in a class action lawsuit. And Citicorp said, "Okay, to hell with it," gave them all loans, uh, and uh, they followed them all up. Daily Caller did a few years later. Almost all of them lost their homes. Several of them filed for bankruptcy. One of them even said, "You know, when you don't qualify for a loan, maybe we shouldn't get a loan." Well, duh! It wasn't true that black people were not getting loans. Uh, plus, there are all sorts of uh, black-owned community banks around the country, and it turns out the turndown rate when you apply for a loan at a black ba- a community bank was even higher because they had less capital and they couldn't afford to loan money to risky people. It is just not the case that the reason for the plight of the black community is because people were not lending money to them. 
It's just not true. That's not uh, true. But yeah, hold, true. hold on one second, Charlamagne. What's, you, what's, you, what's you, not you, true? Stop there. So I never heard that story before. I looked it up. Sure enough. Uh, Barack Obama, this is 1996. I think he said 1960. Or he said 1965 and it was 1995. I think he just misspoke there. Uh, so look this story up and uh, it's a thing. So Obama was a lawyer, just a regular nobody lawyer. He wasn't leading the charge here. There were actually two progressive activists who were, one was leading the civil the charges and then one was the head of the law firm. Uh, for this class action lawsuit, there are 183 plaintiffs. They claim that Citibank denied them home loans because they were black in 1993 and 1994. Citibank's leading agent, uh, this is one of the people, told me that I needed to put thousands of dollars down to increase equity. I was so upset at that. I said, do I look like I have stupid on my forehead? Said Modestine McCleary. Another person said he had a Citibank mortgage on his property in Austin, a west side Chicago neighborhood, but was rejected when he sought a mortgage to buy a house in the troubled Maywood district. And all their claims go on and on. And Citibank said, no, it's their lack of financial qualifications. And they gave receipts. They said 19 of the people who applied for a loan had been bankrupt or received foreclosure already. So yeah, it's going to be harder for you to get a loan. So in the end, long story short, Larry was right. They, they all got their loans. And in the end, 46 of them declared bankruptcy. Some of them multiple times. 55 of them had their homes foreclosed on some multiple times. And of the remaining people, only 19 of them still own a home today. So of the 186, only 19 still own their home. It's a Daily Caller article. It's called uh, Landmark Lawsuit Barack Obama Pushed Banks to Give Subprime Loans to Chicago African Americans. That's the Daily Caller one. Now, to go back to the theme... The theme is that black people need their own black whatever. Black girls need to see black soccer players. Black students need black teachers. They despise us. So in this case, uh, we would say, or they would say, black people need their own black banks. So this guy said we need black banks. Okay, well, there are. Let me quote the great Thomas Sowell. The U.S. Commission on Civil Rights showed that 44% of black applicants were turned down for mortgages but only 22% of white applicants. Uh Uh-oh, very racist. Now, what they don't tell you is in the same data, white people, again, turned down 22% of the time, and Asians and Native Hawaiians were turned down 12%. Oops. Turns out these banks were racist against white people compared to Asians and Hawaiians. But the real data says, and the real interesting thing says, that black-owned banks turned down black applicants for home mortgage loans at a higher rate than the white-owned banks. So so where, so where the white-owned banks turned down black applicants 44% of the time, the black-owned banks turned them down even more. Wait a second. I thought black people needed black bankers. Uh, they're even more racist, I guess, by your own standard of racism. So here's the moral of the story. When are we going to knock it off? we please knock it off? When can we look at people as a person? Look at their behavior, what they believe, and look at them as an American. Look at ourselves as an American. But here's the deal. All this race stuff, it, it just fills a void. 
That's all this is. Race, gay, all these, all these identity things, they're just filling a void that used to be filled by American. It used to be just American. What's your identity? American. Well, you remove that identity, and now what are you? Um, well, I guess I'm black. That's the most important thing to me. Or I'm trans. That's the most important thing to me. And we're coming up with all these new identities because we've removed the one that united us. This is Rush Limbaugh on The Breakfast Club. Do you remember this interview? This is uh, not too long ago. It was George Floyd. It was about George Floyd. Rush Limbaugh on The Breakfast Club. It was a great interview. Here's part of it. Look, guys, can I ask right. you, you keep harping on white privilege. Oh, it's good to hear Rush's voice, isn't it? There he is. Privilege and racism. Would you tell me how to end it? How, how, what, what can we do to end this so that you are not frustrated and angry and and feeling like whatever you feel like because i hate killing it I hate, you guys people. were all americans here and i don't like offices. the fact That's that you're two. angry all well, the time so what no, can we do okay. to stop the racism uh this is so good i'll play it again because the guy was talking over he's like we're all americans i hate that you feel this way i don't want you to be feeling this way so what do we do Whatever you feel like, because I hate it. I hate um, you guys. People. We're That's all one. Americans Arrest here, and I don't like offices. the fact That's that you're two. angry all well, the time. So what no, can we do okay. to stop the racism? Here's the thing, right? Um, as long as there's a system of white supremacy, you know there will always be these type of situations. You know, it doesn't matter who's in the White House if that person is not willing to dismantle the mechanism of white supremacy. If that person is not willing to change legislation that disproportionately impacts Black folks. It doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, we've seen this a million well, times. Okay, the tell riots, me the what Ferguson happened. Riots. You had four years of Barack Obama. You had you had Americans, white <laughs> Americans, did. voting for Obama because they wanted to say, we're not racist. We're, we, we're not a racist country. You had people electing the first African-American president in our history. That's he right. served for eight years. Why isn't there anything to show for it that makes you less What's angry than you were then? Once again, it doesn't matter who's in the White House if that person is not willing to dismantle the mechanism of white Come supremacy. Come on, guys. It matter. It, 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 elections don't matter now? Thanks for being here. Of course, the song Rich Men North of Richmond. I can't get out of my head, but it's uh, more than catchy. And I want to try to understand it. I want to try to understand why it resonates so deeply and powerfully uh, on so many levels. So we thought we'd reach out to Lee Greenwood. He knows country music. Here he is. Lee Greenwood. How are you, sir? Hi, good morning. How are you, Mike? Good to you. Great to talk to you. Uh, Lee, I got a lot, yeah, of, uh, a lot of questions about art to talk to you about. And okay. I can't, can't think of anyone better to talk to about it than you. So what is country music? What is, what is, what, what do we just hear right there? What is, what is good, real country music? It's, an, uh, it's a representative of the culture. Uh, I'm from rural America. I'm not from the big cities. I, I, although I was born in LA, I was raised in Sacramento on a, on a farm, sharecroppers farm. You know, we tour a hundred days a year or plus. And uh, every doghouse, outhouse, and roundhouse, and I, you know, I find, I find Americans everywhere. Uh, they are, they are in the big cities in New York and Detroit and Miami, and I mean, you know, but, but I think the the heart of America is 
is in people, hardworking people who are blue collar, more, more than white collar. And they, they are uh, the salt of the earth. They, they understand the basic uh, elements of survival. And, uh, and we, have, we have a collective in America. We have a collective of people who believe in each other and who represent and respect each other for their beliefs in America being the greatest country on earth. And the only way to protect it is to make sure that we protect ourselves. We protect our home. And uh, in the music you heard a moment ago, it's just a basically, it's like explaining what and who we are. Let, I want to talk specifically about, about that song. Uh, and then I want, to, I want to, I get some bigger, bigger questions. What is it about that song? So I, like, I know nothing. I don't know anything about music. I'm just a, a guy who listens to it from time to time. Is it the notes that he plays? Like, why is the song so good? Is it the notes? Is it the instrument? Is it just the sound? Is it the lyrics, the words? Is it the tone, the way he sings it? Like the, like the heart of it? What, what do you think clicks with people? Um, several things. It, is, it has something to do with the instrument. Uh, naturally guitar uh, and the way it's played it is a representative of America's own music called which I, I would call country I mean I think what kind of what kind of, what invented. kind of music or sorry what kind of instrument is that what kind of guitar is that well it's a it's it's a basically acoustic guitar it's it's non-electric which makes it very raw and uh, and a lot of people like that I mean you you can see any any major act in a major arena around the country and it's in your face. It's loud. It's all over the, it echoes throughout your body and throughout the arena. It makes people stand up and cheer against. It's a lot of noise. This is raw. This is like, uh, um, people would love to see any major act in a living room yes. setting where they're just hearing the raw notes of a simple guitar and, uh, and a, and a singer who expresses the lyrics in a very emotional way. Yes, no doubt. How about the way he sings it? Is there was there something unique about that, or what is it about that? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a musician from since the time I was ten years old. I'm a jazz player, rhythm and blues player. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's very uh, very earthy. Uh, yeah, and he has a little bit of a twang, you know, in his voice. So representative of the South. Um, although being, being from Sacramento, I, I knew a lot of guys that spoke just like that. They didn't have a drawl, but <laughs> yeah. they were, they were like, I didn't go to school and, uh, and this is all I got. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the critique of it? So New York magazine, Oliver Anthony and the incoherence of right-wing populism. The guardian says the protest song that's taken America by storm hits too many false notes. So that's on the left, if you will. But here's the National Review. So there's all the people on the right. My brother in Christ, you live in the United States of America in 2023. If you're a fit, able-bodied man and you're working overtime hours for blank pay, you need to find a new job. And the whole article goes on like that. What do you make of that? Well, I don't like it. I mean, I, <laughs> it's, uh, you, know, you, attack, you attack the art uh, for an expression that is basically a narrative on uh, on how a hell of a lot of the nation feels, and I, you you really can't ignore that, and I think that's why media tends to uh, band together in trying to make some kind of critique on something that uh, they probably have no business doing. I think of it so as I mentioned, last Fourth of July fireworks show, 
uh, yeah, they play all the music in the background now. That's like the thing. And, uh, you know, a song here and there. And then this song will play. They played a Celine Dion song, which is weird. She's not even American. But then whenever your song popped up, everyone stood up, Lee. Still. Right? All these years later. And maybe that will be, that's like the litmus test for if we're in bad shape. Is if your song no longer hits those notes. If, you're, if your song no longer causes people to indeed stand up uh, and cheer then that's a, that's a bad sign. Fortunately, at least where I live, we're not there. But I fear one day we will be. What do you think? Well, I hope not. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've witnessed how God bless the USA has echoed uh, for Americans who understand um, where we're going. And, and I think I, basically when they stand up you know, and recognize my song as a uh, as an anthem for all Americans. I, I think it it, and that's the key. It's all Americans. I don't. There's nothing racial about it. There's nothing uh, hostile about it. It is emotional. I intended it that way to be timeless, um, and it acknowledges the sacrifice of the military. I, you know, what greater thing? And you, I think when you look back at America's history, a lot of it, the earmarks in, in time are. Are by war, and uh, and we acknowledge that World War One, World War Two. I mean, all the way back to the Revolutionary War, if you will, and and then uh, then we had those strife wars, the Korea, Vietnam, and that's my era. I mean, I'm I'm born in '42, so I, I I kind of I didn't I was isolated from it because I was on a farm. I didn't really read the news and didn't see anything about that, and then then I went to uh, Las Vegas at the age of 17 years old and, and eked out a living for, you know, 20 years uh, until I had my career. But I never forgot the fact that I came from poor uh, beginnings. And and maybe that's the best way you start, because then you recognize what the good is. And America started on its knees. You know, we were, we were about a heartbeat away from, from losing our independence. And those people in Pennsylvania, when they got together and said, are we going to fight Britain? the greatest power on earth, or are we uh, just going to submit? And I think that's, that's the, that's the value of an American. I think we have that history. Yeah. Okay. You're touching on something really important. The, the, where, where you came from. So where you came from as a person, but then also connecting to where this country came from and how we started as a country. Uh, clearly that is being attacked. Uh, in many, many different ways. And we're losing that connection. And then we're losing the sense of who we are. And then we can be easierly, easier. It's easier for us to be manipulated into something very, very different. Uh, so that connection to your home and the connection to your beginnings. Because that's essential. That's not just a nice, quaint thought. That is essential. No, I agree. I, I You know, the, the erasing of history. I mean, that... That's just stupid. I mean, you know, changing history books, changing the pattern. First thing Hitler did when he took over the country in Germany, burned the books. It's like, I don't want, I want you to know that. Start now. I got a 28-year-old and a 25-year-old. Both uh, went to college. Um, Parker, our young, young, girl, young guy, is, is in Miami now, uh, getting his master's in music. And Dalton just graduated Vanderbilt with a Ph.D. in cancer research. I, the closest I get to college is riding my bicycle past it. <laughs> Uh, as a kid, you know, on the way to my paper route, but, but I, I think humble beginnings teaches you that, that you got to look to the past 
you know. And remember the struggle that they had in the covered wagons moving west. Um, I, you know, I, some of the great presidents of our past that 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 actually went against the grain to do something right. And um, and and of course, it is a new day. I mean, my my kids, uh, although they had a good dose of do, dose of college uh, liberalism, they basically still think about. America being the greatest country on earth and and this cancel culture of let's uh, let's get rid of everything we know and start again. That That's what America, we're a bad guy. America is terrible. You know, and and yes, we went after some resources in the world that probably benefited us. Um, and a lot of Americans gave their lives maybe in causes that we shouldn't have. But we always talk about the beacon of freedom. If you really believe that, then it's worth dying for. And ask, ask another country who, who immigrants come here, become Americans, to find the dream, find the, the torch of freedom that the Statue of Liberty stands for in New York Harbor. And they say, there's nothing greater on this earth than this country that gives me a chance to start from nothing and have everything I possibly can have. That, those stories are resounding about immigrants who come here and become very wealthy because they, they, uh, they believe in the dream. You take away the history, you take away the dream. Hmm. Let me let me add, just to keep the analogy alive about knowing our humble beginnings. Yeah. So this is a dad well, question. Sure. Dad question for you. Okay. How? Because you grew up on a farm with not a lot of money outside Sacramento in the country. Your kids didn't, right? Your kids grew up with means, and I'm thinking of my my grandpa was a roofer, right? And then his dad, his son was had more money and right. And then I have more than my dad and my kids are now growing up with way more than my grandpa ever. Had, right. So how do you keep those roots and how do you keep your kids with humble beginnings when they maybe didn't have humble beginnings? You know, that's a great question. And, and, and my wife, Kim and I struggled with that at first, you know, um, how do we, how do we delve out or dole out the resources gradually to our kids so they're not spoiled mm-hmm. you know the, the the greatest tragedy is when you have somebody with great wealth and and you educate your children to be independent thinkers they become independent thinkers but then so many things go along with having too much too soon uh the uh, 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 uh the access to drugs would be the first one mm-hmm. and and then um but we, you know, we had a we have a very solid unit, Dalton Parker and I and Kim. We we had talked so very much about the dangers of life. We've taken them all around the world to give them worldly perspective about mm-hmm. other countries, other cultures, and we've uh, sheltered them from um, from abuse of, of resources. And and it's it's amazing that we we never really had to to say that um, just by monkey see monkey do, I guess. But it was. You know, every time my, my boys would want something, hey, Dad, this costs $23. Is, is it okay if I, but I get this? You know, it's something I can use, and, and it's important in my life, and you know. And, and uh, never never did they have, like, a, a credit card that was like, here, just get whatever you want. Yeah, it, yeah. it was never that. There's a, there was a limit, and they knew that. But, but it wasn't like you're handcuffing me, Dad. I, I want to buy more things, you know. Yeah. Too much is not good, and uh, and they know that. And so I'm, even though they didn't start like I did, and my and my wife as well. Her parents worked in the in the rubber factories, and so did her grandparents up in Akron, uh, because there was no work in Tennessee. And we had similar similar beginnings, although different parts of the country. Knowing that 
if you if you don't have a lot, and I I didn't have anything when I was growing up hardly. I mean, I I can remember buying my own socks. We had an outside toilet until I was twelve, and uh, no plumbing in the house. And then we finally did get it, and I'd wash out the only pair of socks I had and hung them on a the bathtub every night so they'd dry out. Where I'm to school the next day, I, you know. That those kind of memories are vivid for me, but you have to move along. I mean, the world's moving at a really fast pace. Unless my kids are aware of, of uh, the pressures on the rest of the world, they will crumble under the pressures on themselves. And they're highly educated. They're very motivated, full of passion, and know what the dangers are and what the crises are and how to handle it and how to yeah. approach it. Yeah, as that just for advice for people, but also there's a parallel there to, to this country. Maybe part of the reason we're losing who we are as a country is because we've become too prosperous in so many ways and we're too spoiled uh, as Americans. And we've lost sight of those humble beginnings in a lot of ways. There's got to be something there. Um, Lee Greenwood, yeah. what is your advice to Oliver Anthony? If uh, Oliver Anthony gave you a call, he's going to call you right after the show and say, hey, Lee, uh, you, you've, you've, been, you've been in front of me, man. And, and I want to do this right. I got one shot. I shouldn't be here, right? I mean, like this happened because my buddy said, hey, can you record this for my YouTube page? <laughs> I just decided to do it and then it blew up and here I am. So like, what is happening? I got one shot at this. I want to do this right. I don't want to blow it. What's your advice, Mr. Greenwood? Stand strong. I mean, you're, um, depend on your art. Don't, mm. don't be biased. Depend on your art to carry you. Defend what you did as an artist, um, you are not a tool of uh, political means, and be careful uh, if, if people would like to use you in that regard. Uh, it is a interesting line you have to walk, but uh, just be true to your art and and try to progress as an artist, a musician, a singer, and and try not to be swayed to do other things uh, that would be damaging to the country. Or to your career. Mm, what do you mean depend on your art? That's, that's a profound sentence. What does that mean? Well, I've always done that. I mean, when my producer, Jared Crutchfield, bless his heart, we were so close, was at MCA Music. All of the songs that come across his desk were, um, were uh, free, to, free, to, free to record. And, and we would look at each one and how it affected my career and how it affected the fan base not just for economic reasons or for career goals, but to say, what does this say about you as an image? And when we recorded Ring on Her Finger, Time on Her Hands, the first line of the song was, she stood before God, her family and friends. And I said, can I say that? You know, and he said, well, how do you feel about that? And I said, well, I, I feel I'm telling an honest story. And there you have it. Yeah, it's great. Lee Greenwood. Sir, thanks for the time. Very grateful. Is there a website or somewhere we can send people? Yeah, LeeGreenwood.com, and uh, when you go there, look for AdoptAVet.com because we want to uh, we want to give a uh, a veteran a chance to see a movie we're going to have in theaters across America on Veterans Day. Very good, LeeGreenwood.com. Thank you, sir. Hope we can talk again. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day. Bye. Uh, she stood before God, her family, and friends, and vowed that she'd never love anyone else again. Only me, as pure as her gown of white, she stood by my side and promised that she'd love me till the day that she died. Ring on her finger, time on her hand. I'm American made. I got American parts. 
for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Francis Martell is going to be here tomorrow to talk about uh, China's claim that we have hacked into their critical infrastructure. And then Steve Moore is going to be here at 8 o'clock to talk about China's economy, which is not doing, it's really doing very badly. Which at first I'm like, yay, good, you know, whatever, they're our enemies. I'd, I'd like them to do bad. But I think we're so entangled with them that they're doing badly mean bad things for us too. So we'll chat about that. And of course, debate preview. And I will give the full argument as to why I think these debates are really bad for us. They're bad for America. And really, we should just stop the whole charade and demand much better. So we'll make that argument tomorrow as well on SiriusXM Patriot, Channel 125. Spread the word.